On this week's episode, I'm with my longtime friend and hunting buddy, Larry Bartlett. Larry has worked and lived in Alaska for well over 25 plus years, starting with his military career, and has been running his own company as long as I've known him. He's been an innovator in backcountry exploration in Alaska, from writing multiple books, designing his own rafts, game bags, and meat care products, to starting his own backcountry food supplement product line, which we discussed in this episode. We also talk about some of the hot topics that are taking place in Alaska that pretty much all hunters should be concerned with, regardless of whether you hunt Alaska or not. This is a good episode that you're not going to want to miss. Thanks for listening. This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. What's up, man? How you doing? What is up, my brother Jimbo? How you doing, man? I'm doing well. It's you know, it's 4:20. The date is 4:20, and the time, Alaska time, is 4:20. I feel like we should be doing something else other than podcasting. I don't know what that would be, but maybe. Yeah, you already missed it on this end. (laughs) Ready, man? How things going for you, Lair? Cannot complain, brother. Life is good. Got a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son. They're keeping me on my toes, bro. These gray hairs are popping out places I never even knew I had hair. Dude, my hair is going faster than the time. Luckily, I still got all mine. It's just gray. (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting gray hair in my beard. and I always tell people, my hair is coming back. It's coming back on my ears and and my back. (laughs) (laughs) Dang, dude. How long has it been since we met each other up here? Yeah, man. So we should tell everybody. I'm I'm here on this week's episode with Larry Bartlett, uh, Pristine Ventures, outdoor writer. The list goes on and on and on. And we've been friends since, what, 2001? Yeah, it had to be. Was my hair long or short when you met me? Uh, starting to get longer? Starting to get longer, yeah. I think it's just getting out of the military, man. Yeah. 2001. Yeah, you had your your book Float Hunting Alaska yep. was was all over Alaska. And you know, we were all doing the outdoor directory forum. So I knew who you were and and I think you knew who I was just from the forum and whatnot. We were at the outdoor show and someone backed out of a hunt and you're like, "Hey, what are you doing this fall?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Nothing." You're like, "You want to go caribou hunting?" I'm like, "I'm in." It was that quick, so it was start like of a good start of a good friendship, man. I miss seeing you. I know you too, man. So let's talk about your background. You you have a a diverse history in uh, life and outdoors, and so you started out in the military. And you what? How many? How many? You were overseas. How many years? Yeah, so I let's see. It's back all the way up to 1989. Um, I just finished my 10th grade in uh, high school. Had not finished 11th grade. Got into a bunch of trouble and uh, hanging with the wrong people. 
you know, friends were rowdy, decisions were bad, law enforcement involved with f- several fights, you know, just a, like a six month degradation. And um, I got to a point where I was like, dude, I got I got to bounce. So I had my mom sign me over to Uncle Sam and join the army and uh, went to basic training in Fort Seal, Oklahoma in October of 89. And then uh, immediately went to Germany as my first duty station as a combat medic. And then went you know, six months later, we were in Desert Storm, first first Gulf War. So it was a, a rapid introduction to adulthood. And I was in the Army for almost 12 years. I graduated from combat medic to licensed nurse, which uh, led me to Alaska. And I was stationed at Fort Wainwright in Fairbanks for almost a little over six years before uh, getting out in 2001. And prior to that, three years prior to my um, termination date, I wrote a book, just self-published the float hunting, complete guide to float hunting Alaska. I didn't know shit about hunting, dude. I was just fresh three years into Alaska and I needed a career. I knew that no one had really dabbled in the in the river hunting in terms of authorship. So I thought, what the heck, man, I've got to slide my foot into the door somehow. And that was my that was my attempt, which was, I think, pretty successful. Highly successful. That book was was spot on as somebody who was new to Alaska in ninety nine. Yeah using that book as a reference and then quickly meeting you, I was like, man, this is, this is good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was uh, super popular, but I was, I was ill prepared. You know, I, I, I just ill prepared for the, for the whole experience, the, the, the attention, you know, and which we'll get into all of that because the attention is what really builds a business model. Right. Um, and how to manage that attention was, has been an interesting, uh, to, two decades i've been in business for 25 years you know yeah it's crazy how tough time flies and what you experience and witness uh throughout that time as a small business owner with your with your focus on conservation ethics and in hunting um you you learn a lot about the industry and the people who who serve the industry and those that service the industry and you wrote you wrote the book but you simultaneously started pristine ventures which were you were doing some fish uh, some guiding on fish yeah. for fishing and raft yeah, trips. So I, you bet, man. I, I, I self-published that book right on. on I think I had $60,000 in, in credit cards that I quickly maxed out to buy a bunch of rafts from NRS and SOTAR, just whoever whoever was making rafts. The best manufacturers, I tried to get the best rafts. I think I got a fleet of like 25 rafts. My dad and I welded a bunch of frames in Texas, and I drove those suckers up from Texas to Fairbanks. And um, so I had this this side side compartment of you know of the business who was renting rafts to hunters because they were calling so frequently because of the book. So that was one one way to to start, and then you know to supplement the income or to make a a living, make do this full time. I started guiding, taking ecotourism. Uh, groups into the Brooks range and using, you know, convincing them to go to places where I would then uh, utilize that information for, you know, hunting applications, moose, caribou operations, you know? Yeah. And then you, in the lay of the land. Right. They were, they were your, your boots on the ground, if you will. Yeah. The financiers of the boots on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, I would give them an eco tour and, you know, teach them how to fish and survive and all that. Yeah. 
And and that led into some trip planning, which we'll get into, right? You you yeah. How when did you start doing the trip planning? Yeah, so the trip planning came out like the second year I started ringing, so probably around two thousand. And um, I, believe it or not, I had all these rafts, and I had the debt. I had that sixty thousand dollars of debt. And uh, here, buddy, I got. I'm bringing my corgi in to just shut him up. He's got a little growl. The snow's sliding off the roof, so it's making all kinds of crazy noises. Oh, no worries. Anyway, these these rafts were uh, creating a lot of demand, but I still had like you know ten or twelve that I could rent out, and I was just trying to make those credit card payments, you know. So I got into trip planning, and I, I was charging seventy five dollars for a hunt plan. Man, That's today crazy. it's twenty. Yeah, today it's twenty five hundred dollars per person just to plan a trip, and we'll get back into that. Yeah, for sure. One thing I will and, say, knowing you being friends with you, hunting with you, from your books to your trip planning service, you were always conscientious of the impacts and protecting the resource. Yeah. And uh, secret is like a like a, a strong word, but you you were really protecting the resource from overuse over harvest but we'll we'll get into that because i think mm-hmm. nowadays some of the hunt planners and stuff ha- have have been um not portrayed as the bad guy but but they've they've contributed to the perceived impacts to the some of the hunting resources what let, let let's just get into it right now what what's going on with hunting in alaska man let's what are some of the hot yeah. topics yeah, this, it's an interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, man. You know, from, from face value, people in the lower 48 um, only know what's on their Facebook and maybe one or two forums that they visit, right? Um, whatever the hot topics show up there, everybody gets interested, involved, or maybe they have a hunt plan in Alaska in some specific area and a, a regional or, or local uh federal law becomes you know in play which threatens the the, the logistics the uh legal huntability of the landscape i mean the list goes on and it's happening all over the all over the state some people may question you know why why that is but there's just so many issues over across a broad uh plane of what is alaska that it's it's hard for the public to keep track of how it affects them um short term and long term yeah some you know some of the things that come to mind like when we started to discuss this uh these hunting topics you know we had moose hunting up there and you know i crossed through it and put mean high water debate and uh quick background the if you wanted to google and learn more about the high water debate as it as it pertains to modern day just uh search for Sturgeon versus frost, like you know, the frosty of the snowman. Yeah. Sturgeon versus frost. That'll give you an idea of how and when this this I don't know battle between the state and the feds has taken shape or taken form into a sort of a tangible something we can all relate to. Um, and and for and those that don't real don't know, historically you would be able to access any water body below the mean high water mark as publicly accessible 
um, access, regardless of the surrounding private properties. And now this is in question, right? That's right. This is this is years ago, but the, the Supreme Court finally ruled in, in this guy's favor uh, after going beyond the Ninth uh, Circuit appeal. So, or the Ninth Circuit Court, but we can... You can you'll learn all about that if you Google that that case. It's interesting. But uh, the 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 crux of that whole dilemma was the National Park Service was patrolling the Nation River and Sturgeon took his his uh, hovercraft up the river and he stayed on the water on the river. And the feds tried the, the National Park Service park rangers basically stopped him and told him you can't take that hovercraft up there. It's National Park Service land. And he argued that it was state land you know it's below the high water mark and he had traditional hunting grounds that he needed access to um they threatened to give him a, a citation so he took him to court and that's hence become sturgeon versus frost and frost i believe was the the law enforcement officer who threatened to give him a citation and blocked his access to uh, lands above national park service gotcha yeah so the mean high water debate in the big picture is an interesting it just keeps boiling into um you know pertinent importance for public landowners a few years ago i was contacted by uh i don't know how much i can talk about this because i was a an expert witness in a case the feds versus the state uh regarding mean high water mark on the 40 mile river mm -hmm. um, several years ago uh, the department of justice contacted me and interviewed me extensively over a period of a couple of years to discern whether I was an expert in the field of navigability. You know, they needed an expert witness to somewhat prove their case that portions of the 40 mile river that they, that the state wanted to open up to dredge mining was non-navigable and therefore it was, you know, wasn't open for the dredging. You know, the debate continues, right? And um, during that during that court, I had to testify and uh, had cross examination by the state. And at the end of it, um, the feds did a good job of of laying out the fact that hey, this is this is non navigable, and you can't prove that it's navigable. So we're not you know basically we're saying that it's not legitimate for you to claim rights and open up dredge mining. I don't know where it says today. I think that case is still ongoing. Um, but the the gist of it is the the state still expects and the uses the constitution, uh, the state's constitution to um, you know state and believe and operate that anything below me in high water is state owned property, and there that makes hunting. For example, this is where this, again, it's boiling over in Unit 23 and Unit 26, which is Northwest Alaska. Uh, the closest community that you might have heard of is Kotzebue. Um, for many years, uh, this is seven years ongoing now, uh, local regional advisory committees have proposed regulation to the Federal Subsistence Board that for emergency closures of caribou hunting on those lands, which you know, to give you a perspective, is somewhere in the vicinity of 19 million acres. Yeah, of federal public land that was closed to hunting, and um, in recent years, I personally and many others have challenged that federal closure by going to those closed lands and hunting below mean high water mark legally. And uh, you know, the state 
the state's not enforcing the federal land closures and the feds don't have enough people to enforce it, nor can they enforce anyone camping and hunting below mean high water as the law currently reads. So um, the debate is a touchy one, especially when you're dealing with federal law enforcement officers versus state trooper conservation officers. Uh, their opinions differ on the matter. Yeah. So not, your approach has to be different as a hunter and your awareness to these matters is important. So where is where is the decision? Um, where does the decision stand right now? Is it is it being well? If it went to the Supreme Court, it, it's it's completed, right? Which one? The for the the mean high water mark. So the the Sturgeon versus Frost case has been decided upon. Supreme Court ruled in his favor, um, and that just basically states that uh, you know it's illegal for for the federal authorities to block access to state lands now the uh, you know that's where they went wrong the debate is whether who owns the substrate rights below mean high water you know can the feds patrol their own land if the state owns the water and and below you know the first 50 feet on each side of the river right uh, that question is going to be continually debated because the governor is is firm in the fact that uh, the state of alaska owns the lands under below mean high water mark, unless very specifically stated in some sort of, you know, uh, land rights. And that's usually well known. National parks, federal preserves, things like that you know, may, may be different, but I can give you a, a, another recent example. Some, you know, several years ago, I, when I was doing some work with BHA, I organized, I approached the National Park Service and was granted uh, permission to restore a remote airstrip on the Charlie River called Gelvin's. It was about it was a stretch of 700 feet, once usable flat runway that got completely washed out by a flood. And for six or seven years, it went unused, and that you know created some logistical challenges for Charlie River users. So, as a public service, I uh, you know used the Park Service to go into Gelvin's and with their help, we removed uh, 200 tons. Um, just put that into perspective, 200 tons of gravel and rocks and boulders from the, the uh, basically below me in high water near the river. And uh, took us 10 days. We restored 700 feet, you know, 700 feet long. In some places, the washouts were three, four feet deep. So you can and, and 15 feet wide. So it was like filling in 700 feet of, of, of river channel with new boulders and, and sand all the graduated up to a landable surface. Took us 10 days, a lot of effort. Well, about a month or two later, National Park Service was contacted by Department of National Resources, law department saying, you guys are you're out of your mind. You, you guys removed, you, you were doing mining on state land, even though it was in Charlie, Yukon, Charlie National Park Preserve, um, the state challenged the federal parks authority to even remove the gravel to restore that strip to usable service. And uh, the super, you know, the person who okayed this project almost lost his job over it. So it was heated for, for a little bit. Um, I think both sides stood down and compromised that any future work on national park below me and high watermark uh, will include a DNR uh, mining or commercial permit to dig which has to go through the the normal processes the you know EPA all, all the all the rigor reward that would take Army Corps of Engineers yeah 
all that. So yep. anyway, we were lucky to get the project done, but we, you know, we raised some feathers doing it with full cooperation of the federal government. But the state took issue with it just to prove a point. So my point is, it almost doesn't matter what industry you're in or what intentions you have. Um, if the state versus fed argument uh, doesn't get resolved, then we're always going to have these micro uh, scenarios that uh, could affect public landowners right? actively or passively. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, they're they're passive because for the large majority, there's only a small percentage of people from the lower 48 that come and hunt Alaska. And yeah, when some absolutely. people, what's that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not on, on most people's radar because it's just not something people do frequently. That's right. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, maybe that lends credence to staying, staying in touch socially with people who do live here and who are in the know just to, uh, you know, stay knowledgeable, stay informed of some of these events and circumstances that do impact our hunting opportunities in Alaska. Yeah, because they could easily set precedents for for other states. Yeah, absolutely, and other other areas of this humongous state that we live in, Alaska. Yeah, if they do it in one region, they can do it in another, and it has a detrimental effect when when um, there there are a lot of micro uh, locations within Alaska that small businesses make a lot of money at and have for decades. And any disruption in one area causes a displacement of interest into neighboring or even far away regions. And, um, you know, that that has a trickle down effect. And and let me tie it in for you. We talked about the closures in game management unit 23 and 26 for uh, caribou hunting on federal public land being restricted by the federal subsistence board. And during prior to that. uh, a popular can we name names when we talk about uh the hunt planning industry or are we like sure we gonna be sensitive so yeah a friend of mine was in uh, the shot show and and he happens to be on the big game commercial services board in alaska just a random random fact he volunteers for that board but he was at the shot show and ran into this guy at hunting fool and i think his name was jared but it, don't quote me on that specifically but the guy was bragging. He was like, man, I can't believe the topic of these closures came up. And he was like, yeah, I guess I'm personally responsible for shutting that place down because last year we had 350 caribou hunters move out, move in and out of Kotzebue. That's one hunt planner having responsibility for 300, 350 group, you know, hunters to travel. That's, that's generally the annual quota for non-local hunters in both regions 23 and 26a um, to confirm that fact one of my good friends that uh, has an air charter operation in Kotzebue bought a turbo otter on wheels to land in the brooks range if you can believe that to support the volume of caribou hunter interest Jeez. and they were largely being being uh sponsored by hunt full supposedly and that's just one of many instances and then so what happened with these closures is a displacement of though of hunt and fool's interest they moved out of the caribou regions and stopped bringing caribou hunters up, uh, up here and they focused that energy on kodiak island blacktail 
And you fast forward two or three seasons, and this year the Board of Game uh, had, uh, you know, during their proposed cycle, had a proposal to restrict the bag limit on black-tailed deer as a result of hunt planners sending floods of hunters into uh, small communities like Port Lyons and even had air uh, boat charters asking them to buy second and third boats so that they could fill them with caribou hunters each year. You know, and that's, I, I have a couple comments on that. And I, you could see that coming with Alaska caribou because Canada's essentially shut down to hunt caribou in Canada is, is pretty much non-existent. So all yeah. those hunt planners, hunting full included, all they did was was switch from sending people to Canada to sending people to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I predicted this. Yeah, you did. Three years <laughs> ago, you know. Yeah. And not only that, the other thing is is I you could see it coming. If you follow hunting TV, you could see trends where there's certain regions and there's certain species that get hot on hunting TV. Eight years ago, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, it was coos deer in Arizona, New Mexico, Mexico. All the hunting shows went down there. Then the transition about five years ago, you could see the hunting shows going to Kodiak Island. I saw it coming a mile away. So for, for... the interest to grow on the hunt planners and sending them caribou hunters now refocusing to Kodiak Island does not surprise me one bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it, it's, it's a disturbing trend. And for me that the, the signs, you know, you started seeing it four five, six years ago in, in, in areas like TV. And I can tell you that about, Oh gosh, what year was it now? 2012, I believe, in that range. Uh, you know, the BBC contacted me. Uh, there, there was a you know, well back up to Governor Parnell. Uh, I believe Parnell and and Pay, Palin come up with this tax incentive for big production crews to, to start filming in Alaska. And, you know, if your production costs more than a hundred thousand dollars, you've got that in the tax credit back. And it was a there was a big push for Alaska shows, and all of a sudden, you know, fast forward three or four years, and the, the airways are just filled with Alaska shows. I can't. I see mean, them. every everything from home remodeling to you know extreme adventures. And a couple of years later, I had these guys, these brothers, uh, contact me, the Kiefer brothers. I think they they still probably own Rusted Rooster Productions, and they did Drop Project Alaska, and they. They hired me for all their hunt planning for their Alaska expeditions. And the very first one that they uh, had me plan, I put them deep in the Brooks Range on the eastern side. And they survived. You know, they did their 28-day survival, uh, didn't bring any food. You know, they struggled, made a good production. It was, you know, I'd give it a, I'd give it an 80 out of 100. You know, it was Yeah, it was solid. I remember that show. Yeah. So um, that just exploded interest in the the in in the little micro units of hunting. Like everybody wanted a, a repeat experience of their adventure, you know. And my hunt plan business, and I ask them, don't don't advertise me, don't never advertise the spot. Well, I guess they 
I think the the first show that they had, or maybe their social media, they had them tracking their tracking the, their GPS uh, Garmin device was showing their GPS coordinates while they were oh, on. Oh no, trip. are you serious? Yeah, dude. And so two years, two, two fast forward two years, the hunt plan hunt planner saw all that show. He's my competitor. He bought a bunch of rafts from me. Asked me not to. Yeah, he said I, I'm not going to use your areas. And uh, so I sold him the boats mainly so I could keep tabs on where he's, you know, what he's doing, how how big his fleet is, and what does he do, man? He moves into that area and a couple that were in the neighboring region. So in one year, between two, you know, bean sprout hump planters just came out of nowhere um, with very little working knowledge of of the surrounding game management unit. I lost 60% of my areas overnight and from one season to the next. And I attribute that greatly to the amount of exposure I received from TV shows like Drop. Although it's a great production, it doesn't bode well for uh, secrecy, seclusion, conservation, preservation, all the things that I stand for as a hunter to be successful, continue to stay successful as a hunter, but also someone who has integrated those philosophies into their business model to have a sustainable hunting career over a 30 or 40 year period, those concepts or ideals have to be visible and palpable and tangible in your business model, uh, lest you lose traction with conservation, with preservation, with the Alaskan experience. And um, I, uh, the thought of losing that is is more powerful than me making money off of the industry. And as a result, you know, I've I've decided I've already posted that my Humpland service is going to be retired to new customers. Uh, it is completely retired to new customers, and I'm only accepting uh, repeat guests, and it'll be completely retired by 2025. I'm booked until 2028, so there's zero volume left in my Humpland service. Wow. And yeah. that's that says a lot about your integrity. And I'm and I I know I just said this at the start of this, but I know from being friends with you, being around you, just how concerned you were with preservation for the resource. Oh and, man, do do you remember that caribou you and I had tried to film so that we could we could we had this script that we wanted to achieve for meat preservation video? You remember yeah. that? Yep, dude. It took us forty five minutes for me to deliver that fucking speech. Yeah, and that fucking caribou, dude. The, to watch that caribou go from all right, I'm ready to be dismembered to swollen. His legs were split open, you know, swollen. That belly was so tight when we released the entrails on that thing, man. It was a mess just to get the conservation message out. We always had the thing spoil. Ridiculous. <laughs> it was Seventy degrees. Ridiculous. But you, you, you were, you were. You know, the whole leave no trace thing, you were doing that way before all that became popular and trendy. You know, yeah. I remember like you making us well, first of all, you would never let l- let us have a fire, even though I was freezing my balls off uh when it was minus five degrees and I woke up in a panic uh in a tent and you my boots froze and and you would oh. not, but when we did have a fire, like all right, we got to like wash these rocks off and turn them over. Like, no, like I'm like, dude, Jesus Christ, this shit's going to be gone by the end of the week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a little extreme, man. Was. No, but I mean, but I'm, I'm just saying like you were doing all this stuff legitimately, not because 
it was getting publicized or or shown on a Facebook post or something stupid like that. You were doing it because that's what you believed. Yeah, and, brother. And you cared here's, about the resource. Yeah, here's here's how that started, man. I was um, three years into my the, the year you and I were floating. Um, you know, I, I believe it was the H River. Um, yep. That same year, I had a group in a new and uh, pretty uh, sketchy and remote part of a tributary of a main river in the Brooks. Right, so you're like twice removed from a typical navigable stream. And uh, during that during that ten or twelve day window, a group harvested a bull and left about thirty pounds of meat on on the carcass. Evidently, well, a state trooper, his name was Kurt Beddingfield, and he he's now retired, but he was a you know badass trooper pilot. And if there was a, an offense taken somewhere, he could land that plane in places that you it, you would almost expect. A helicopter to come in, right? So he lands down the he lands near the carcass, hikes two miles to the carcass, salvages the 30 pounds of meat, goes back to his plane, flies downstream, lands below the group. It was, you know, 15, 20 miles downstream by then, lands below and waited for him to drift by him. He called him over and and presented their meat to him and gave him a, you know, not only a, a citation for uh failure to salvage all edible meat from a big game harvest. But during the inspection of their, their raft, the meat was down on the bottom of the cargo platform covered in a tarp and it was starting to spoil. And it was, the carcass was only three days old. So these guys had not been preserving this meat well at all. And I didn't catch that, uh, that potential failure in them during my brief conversations as a, as a hunt plan you know, as, as they're my guest, I'm kind of filling out what their experiences level are. Most people talk of a good game, but when the time comes that a 1500 pound animal hits the ground, they don't know what the fuck is heads are up with that thing. Uh, because it's a lot of, it's a lot of meat to deal with and it's daunting. And to know that you have to take it all, uh, some hunters just don't know what that means. Yep. So what I learned from that, that trooper called me after the hunt and he said, Hey man, I, I ran into this group out on such and such river and this is the first I've been doing this for 25 years. And this is the first group I've ever seen float that stretch in a raft. And uh, for them to be hunting after I interviewed them, hunting and floating in that environment, they were way uh, undermatched with skill level to the rigors of the demands of that skinny, narrow location that they were hunting. And he advised me, uh, he had made an important observation and advised me to, to, to take it, take this bull by the horns. And he said, if you're going to be, he said, I know you're developing a good reputation, but if you're going to be here in 20 years, you're going to have to educate these people and you're going to have to choose who make a, make a better choice of who you put where and how many people you put. Uh, he said, I'm thankful that you didn't have anyone behind this group. Most hunt planners do an early season and a late season. You know, early on I switched only to one one trip per season per river. And he was like, you got to educate these people on me care, man. Uh, there's no other resource out there for them to do it. And you got to be that guy. And I got to work, dude, by and in 2007, I'd interviewed uh, state troopers, 
land managers and uh, a consensus was gathered that, yeah, meat care problems are a huge concern in Alaska. Uh, two major violations, failure to salvage all edible meat for human consumption and failure to preserve meat for human consumption. I'm sorry, failure to salvage all edible meat from a big game animal and then failure to preserve that meat for human consumption. Two different violations and those guys got both violations on, on one float trip, largely because I didn't educate them properly. And secondarily, they were uh, not only did they lack the education, but they didn't have the physical prowess to be where I put them. And both are, in my opinion, responsibilities of yesterday's hunt planners and tomorrow's hunt planners. And uh, all the hunt planners that I know of use my resources to educate hunters because I've spent 18 years developing all these resources. Dude, I started in 2007. I designed a social experiment to capture this this uh, belief that there was you know, 20 to 30 percent failure in both of these legal arenas. Yeah. Why so don't you I talk about that? A, yeah. I designed Project Blood Trail and I use the Internet as a way to to gather my audience who would be buying my products or hiring me to, to plan hunts. And I just I gave a hunt. Basically, I joined them on a hunt under the guise of this being a, a group of five groups of two man teams. So 10 people and myself and my partner. And we would just float a 175 mile stretch of river in the Brooks Range in nine days and hunt for caribou. And what I really was doing, I let them go downstream and I follow behind to locate all the kill sites. So hopefully each person would shoot at least one caribou and I would have a, a small data set of at least 10 hunters to give me an idea of uh, what percentage of, of meat handling failures are we really dealing with. That shit has never been done before, dude. I, I looked at anthropology book textbooks for guidance. Like, there's just no published studies on hunter behavior, and certainly not in Alaska. So this is of its kind. But what I did was turn that video documentary, that uh, documentary, into a a meat care. You know how to salvage, preserve, and transport big game from from remote Alaska, and I titled it Project Blood Trail. That's now a free video on my YouTube channel. Just uh, you could Google uh, Larry Bartlett, Alaska on YouTube. And I think there's like 60, maybe 70 videos on there. Uh, many of them are full length video uh, productions. So that was a success. And what it did for my audience was reduce the since 2010. We haven't had a single uh, citation in the field for meat care violations. But what I have done many years since for, for decades is follow groups without them they're basically covertly and um, I'm two or three days behind them and I'll find each of their campsites and monitor their impact and pick up their trash, police up their carcasses, deliver the meat to them before they're all out of the field and give them an education. And I've seen this play out where I caught one carcass and they left 15, 17 pounds on a moose. And the second carcass I found seven days later had you know, less than one pound left on it. So they were like, they learned their lesson, you know, but uh, some of that document uh, documentation is on Float Dragon Alaska, the movie, also a free video on a YouTube channel. And I remember that original project blood trail because uh, you presented each group with their bag of meat and the look on their faces that, oh shit, 
you went to the kill sites and then I can't believe this is how this how much this is how much meat I left behind. Yeah. That was impactful. Yeah, and I was able to use science, you know, to show them math, basically mathematics to show look, all of the we got 10 caribou here, the average the average take home was 105 pounds. So for every pound you left on the carcass is representative of 1% of the maximum yield for that animal. And um and to couple that with how you treated that for the last 8 days, um you know, here here are some lab samples to show how much bacteria was on some of this meat. It was starting to turn, you know, it's because you didn't you didn't you kept it covered with a tarp. And, you know, I was able to document all these failures that state troopers had been talking about. Um, and I was able to not only witness it firsthand, but capture it on video and then turn that into an educational video, which is now free for public viewing. Um, it's great for hunt planners who don't have their own education. Like, yeah, you use my. Uh, my knowledge to help your clients because in the end it's that's what's going to help us all have a better perception when we're in the field and coming out for sure circling back to kodiak island so i know kodiak even when i lived there uh we hunted it once for bear i wish i would have hunted it for deer um but we it seems like it was cyclical where there would be heavy winners and then they would reduce the number of tags you were allowed to, to, to buy or you, your number of deer you were allowed to harvest. And so now is, is what's the condition of the deer down there? Yeah. What surprisingly the <clears throat> Kodiak advisory committee, right? Every unit has their own, every region has their own advisory committee to handle the, I don't know, let's call them biological issues, right? If there are any issues that relates to the hunting or the resource, it needs to be an advisory committee of seven to 10 people to sort of make judgments and plan meetings and discuss the issues. Well, during this um, Kodiak advisory committee, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Biologists testified there is no biological, there is no current biological concern for the Kodiak deer population. This board of game decision was based solely on the perception of increased hunter traffic, specifically related to the uh, the the. They didn't use the word fear. I apologize. I don't recall exactly the word they used, but it, it, the the concern that only one hunt planner could be responsible for this much hunter presence on Kodiak. It, it's irrelevant of how many deer are available to shoot. It has more to do with, I don't, we don't need um, 10 boats in our harbor. We're all, you know, we're all trying to get deer, but the competition is just too great. And the presence of these guys is, is concerning and it sets a dangerous precedent. And it's, it, it echoes, these are non, uh, this isn't a native versus non-native or a local versus non-local thing. It's the same. It's the same perception that played out in Kotzebue when all of these closures started to happen. Um, it's the perception of increased hunter traffic in Kotzebue that makes people fearful and scared. That it, they know that a certain percentage of these hunters only come home with with antlers. They donate the meat. They don't put emphasis on subsistence or sustenance. It's all about the the ego or the the representation of the hunt, which is the antlers or maybe the hide. So um, it creates a local strain and concern, and that's what leads to the advisory committees saying, okay, our people say this is a problem. We're taking this to the board of game. They present 
all of their evidence to the Board of Game with the biological evidence showing there's there's no biological necessity for a closure. They overrode that saying there is this concern and we're going to reduce the bag limit to reduce the number of hunter traffic. And I know from a fact for a fact that those hunt planners bill it as man, look, you could shoot three deer. Mm-hmm. So you get more bang for your buck. You know, you're hunting in Alaska. You're you're hunting off a boat. You know, a lot of those hunts are, are take place in, in late October, November. They're glassing from the boat, taking skiffs to the shore and, and hunting that way. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, I think the overall message, if we have, if we have a takeaway from this issue, instead of turning it into an awareness of, an, of a complaint, the validity of, of, of this situation or the context of the situation lends credence to the need for hunt planners, one, one, either hunt planners need to be regulated by a commercial service so that there is some command and control and authority over their behavior. So there are consequences for saturation or prevention for that, for a hopeful better solution would be yeah. prevention of the saturation. But um, without a self-imposed conservation or preservation ethic in your business model, um, any any right now anyone can come to can go to get a hundred dollar business license and become a hunt planner with no pre prior knowledge of a region or situation uh, or context of regional concerns and start shoveling hunters into a to an area uh, they could be the most knowledgeable people in the world but if they don't know the impact and the consequences of their of their impact then they're doing they're performing an irresponsible act on nature and they're certainly not doing Alaska any favors because um, this is a prime example of, well, come fuck it up for a couple of years and create havoc and we'll show you exactly what we can do to stop it. And then everyone suffers. Yep. Um, and they don't give a shit. And and I'll, no. I'll be honest because they'll just move the resources to somewhere else. They they'll already have. Their, they'll move their clients somewhere else. That, and yeah, and if and if that business model were to be applied to moose hunting, the only thing limiting them to go into any area is to find a pilot that can get them in there. And what what hunt planners and and these guys have proven that they can do is, if you've got enough clients that are paying, the math works out. Where yeah, I, I'm one of my competitor hunt planners hired. He couldn't. No one would fly him in the interior because he's he's shady. So. They stopped working with him and he was hurt. He had already booked that year's client. So he went to Juno and found somebody that would was able to bring their their uh, plane to the Brooks Range and use it for the whole month with a promise of a $60,000 profit at the end of the season. And he got it. But he didn't know squat about landing conditions where this guy was planning. It was a goat rope. People were stranded. My pilots were going to get those guys because the pilot dropped them off in the wrong place. It's just, it creates a an unsafe and an unfriendly environment for everyone involved, in my opinion. But until something changes, um, it won't change. It's not going to change by self-restriction because that's, that's not capitalism. It's not America, uh, not for everyone. But those who are willing to self-restrict, um, my business model has thrived uh, even on a, on a, on a shoestring client uh, list um, because we, you know, perform a good service. We're, 
we're righteous, we're lawful, and uh, we're predictable, frankly. People who do trust our products or services know that we've been here, know that my conservation ethic, you don't find negative comments about me online, and that's rare in 25 years. That only shows that the conservation um, uh, business model is a is a proven and prudent uh, viable option for business models to copy. You know, you use that, use my business model, use my ethics and behavior online and through the education resources to make it a better place or it'll be a worse place or stagnant at best. And when these guys publicize these areas and especially hunting TV and then compile that with the, the hunt planners like hunting fool, they they drive up artificially the cost to hunt those places. Sure they do. And you know when when I lived there, I mean you could hunt you could hunt Kodiak Island for fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, that hunt that you and I did for your moose is double what you and I paid. Yeah, double. Yeah, it's and, it's uh, it's and, tough, man. Yeah, it's it's a wicked cycle, and I just don't think people have. They're only looking at what's in front of them now, and they're they're not looking down the road. Yeah. Well, to help you know to help combat this, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but to get it to get ahead of this problem, you know, which I've been some of what I've discussed over this last hour, you know, involved my early experience as a hunt planner and the. Um, how quickly impacts can, you know, collectively build on top of you and, and, and force you to either exist in a crowded environment or disperse into new and uh, uncharted territories. Um, but without, without some intervention, problems like these Kodiak closures, where, where's hunting full going to go to keep that staff, um, you know, paid? Where are they going to get their commissions? Where are they going to put these hunters? If not Kodiak deer, what's the next target? Um, so to get ahead of this thing, recently I had testified at the Big Game Commercial Services Board. This is a few weeks ago here in Fairbanks and laid out this hunt plan issue. And I know Hunt and Fool was at least on the line listening to the to the testimony. But uh, the gist of that testimony came that everyone uh, believed and was aware the hunt plan issue is is real. And we're going to move to trying to establish a working group through the Big Game Commercial Services Board focused on the hunt planner issue so that we can get representatives from the public and from, you know, various uh, sectors to help, uh, you know, collectively uh, format some, I don't know, brainwork around this problem to come up with uh, not necessarily a restriction, but some answer to help. Uh, reduce the likelihood of this repeating in the future. So stay tuned to that. It won't be this year. If any traction on that topic, it'll be 2024 and beyond. Yeah. We'll have to revisit that. What there was a, another outdoor writer um, that wrote a book on float hunting. Michael Strahan. Yeah. Michael Strahan. And he passed away, right? Yeah. COVID. Yeah. So, uh, he 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 was a good dude, but one thing he did, which was different than what you did in your books, 
was he named names and named rivers. Mm, and I yeah. think he had a list of 50 rivers in his book. What are those rivers like since that book was published? Post and pre-publish. Yeah. That's a, how much time do we have? We can go as long as you want. Well, there's a backstory to that, that that you should hear before I answer that question. During Before I published my very first book, so this would have been 1996, uh, 1997. I contacted a guy, an author at the time, who was he? He was like, uh, um, he was like uh, Canada's Jim Shockey, right? This guy's name was Chris Batten, and he wrote a comprehensive guide to hunting in Alaska. Very good book. His, yeah. Oh man, St- uh, st- stunning detail, uh, plethora of resources. Yeah. Tremendous knowledge. Dude was on fire in his thirties and forties. And, um, and I'll get to that, but, um, in, in early 97, I had written this book or I had at least a rough manuscript that I wanted him to read because I wanted back then internet was just getting started and authors were still wanting to be published and using forwards by people who were, um, you know, renowned in the industry. So I used him as a target to, both, you know, kind of put me onto the scene and give me a pat on the back and say, yeah, this guy's got it, got his shit together and trust his word. I gave him this manuscript and it was, it was a complete guide to float hunting in Alaska with the, the, with 50 rivers listed. And I had them all listed out and he read it, he kept it for six months. And I was like, man, I'm going to, you know, I'm really wanting to get this thing to print, you know, in eight months. And I was like, I, I need you to edit this thing quickly and give me the forward so I can move on. He kept it. He kept it. He, he was real quiet. Well, I got a call from somebody who's um, in the raft industry down in Anchorage and said, Hey, I heard somebody was writing a book on float hunting. Um, and uh, I was like, what, what's his name? It's like, Oh, it's Mike Strahan. And uh, he's having this guy in, 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 in Anchorage or in Fairbanks read, you know, he's going to publish his book. I was like, what's that guy's name? He's like, Chris Batten. I was like, what the fuck? It's like Chris had taken my manuscript with 50 Rivers, kept it for six months while he was negotiating with Mike Strahan about his future book, uh, which, by the way, took an additional 10 years to complete. Yeah. But Chris didn't know. Chris didn't know that that was going to be the case. So Chris had to choose. Um, am I going to am I going to publish this guy's book, who's already a hunting guide and probably has more knowledge than Larry? Or take a chance on this young guy, this this shitty ass manuscript that I'm reading. Um, or do I get rid of Larry and keep Mike? Right. So that was his decision. So finally, after six months of back and forth, they finally gave me my manuscript back, and he basically just gave it to me through the door. Didn't even open up the door. He just opened up his screen door, handed me the an envelope, and uh, he said uh, thanks but no thanks, and he shut the door. So I got in the car and I started reading through some of his notes. Basically, he wrote a note on the front page and said, this is, he said two points. One, this is the worst, this is the worst book I've ever read. And you're probably going to need another 30 years to become a, a decent author. So after I pulled the knife out of that side and the blood was pouring out, you know, my heart was my hero, my mentor, my potential mentor had just told me basically I was a, you know, was not up to the task, to put it lightly. And then he told me, which was good advice. He said, I strongly encourage you not to use 
the 50 rivers by name because you're going to increase hunter attention on those places and destroy what hunting uh, really is in those remote places. And I took that information even through my pain as a foresight that that guy didn't even know that he, he groomed me, solidified in me that conservation and uh, secrecy or protection and preservation are key elements and being discreet are key successful uh, uh, ideologies hunters possess if they're going to be successful for long term. And I took that to heart and I designed my entire business model around, yeah, he's right. And, I, and I'm and i going to make this pervasive in all of my business decisions. Uh, it's always going to be about the resource. So I published that book and it was it was half as thick as I expected and hoped. So, um, and I didn't have the 50 rivers. So, and I was using those 50 rivers as really fluff um, value proposition to my, to my words, right? Well, it took bat, it took bat in 10 years to get straight hand to finish this book. And he was struggling so much because he wanted it to be a textbook that he, he let him just finish and finish. And finally, he's like, dude, you got to finish. Here's what I want you to do. Here's Bartlett's 50 rivers. You make your own 50 rivers, but outline them specifically with maps and grid coordinates or access. You want to write a book that sells? Um, this is the way to do it. By then, his authorship sales have you know, been kneel to none, and he was struggling to make a living. So he was hoping that Strahan was going to be his golden golden goose with this, with this float hunting textbook that was proposed to come out. And he marketed it for years before it actually hit the shelves. Yeah, and it really and it didn't do good when it when it sold because it was what sixty dollars or some ridiculous figure at the time. Um, so they missed the mark completely. Even though it's a great book, uh, those particular rivers you don't even want to go and hunt anymore. So Batten saw the success that you had and wanted to differentiate Strahan's book and went against his own advice and because he was nearing the end of his career and he thought that would be a great selling point to, to illustrate these 50 rivers with access and make it easier for people to, to hunt and float these rivers. And so basically he sold out. He sold out. And the downside is he's such a, the guy's such a shady character. Uh, Strahan negotiated. He was so eager to be a, an author and beat me, you know, just beat me into the ground because we were fierce competitors in the beginning, you know, liberal versus conservative, you know. And uh, dude negotiated himself and didn't read the fine print with Batten's uh, terms and he ended up with a 25 cent royalty on every book sold in perpetuity. So the guy got totally screwed. And and then died well before he should have. Yeah, tragic, tragic. Yeah, I remember those days of you guys b battling it out, and and him constantly trying to downplay your your success and knowledge, and it and it was. Um, it was evident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the 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 moral of the story is those fifty rivers are shit. Yeah. And you just they're good you, recreational floats. And I still use some of his grid coordinates that he provided in the book for like, you know, if I'm going to a place for fishing and, it, and if his is listed, I'll I'll grab his book off the shelf, and grab the grid coordinates or the logistics out of it. And, you know, it is a it is a helpful resource, but wouldn't rely on it for hunting more hunting success than you would expect for a hunting book. Wow. But, you know, nonetheless, great reading. Otherwise, good information. 
Yeah, and even even Batten's book, I, I that's I, I, that's as thick as that book is. I read that book cover to cover twice. Yeah, same here, man. Um, same here. Do you even want to go down? No pun intended. The Ambler Road. Do you want to go down that road, or is it? That's up. That's up to you, man. Um, maybe we I, take. If, are you done? Are you? No, no, no. We could go. I mean, typically we'll go. We could go two hours. We've been going just over an hour. All right. Well, let me go fill up my wine and we can hit those last couple of topics. Yeah. All right, man. So Ambler Road, this is this is a, a road that's being proposed to access a, uh, a mining site in the Brooks Range that got a lot of publicity. And right now it's it's in holding, right? Yeah. So <laughs> this is a construction phase for our road. It's 211 mile long from the south side of the Brooks Range. It extends west from the Dalton Highway to the south bank of the Ambler River, which is also on the south side of the Brooks Range, um, basically halfway down the Cobook River. The road would open the road is said to be open only to mining related industrial use, and it would be closed to the public. And it would re- include bridges, material sites, maintenance sites, and related infrastructure and utilities, not to mention the mining activity that's proposed. Now, when this thing hit the news, this is many years ago, uh, the scoping pro- they, they, these things were dated 2017. So it was around 2015 or 16 when I first started hearing about it from BLM. And I, at that time, I was working with uh, BHA, right, looking for... Um, now, public issues, um, any anything re- related to public lands, Alaska chapter wanted to be involved in it, at least aware of it. That led me to BLM. BLM gave me the spiel on what this proposal was, the scoping process, what it's you know what what they plan to do with it, and they show me roughly where they're going to put this road. Um, and what caught my eye was it was going to be closed to the public, but they were trying to use state funds. You're right. To do the road right well that's a big no-no because any any state funds uh it then that means that the public should have access to it right well if you compare what they did with the dalton highway everybody knows the whole road yeah what most people don't know is that place didn't even open even though the pipeline was put in in the late 60s opened in 72 by the way i'm 51 so um it you know spanning my life time the pipeline has been active and it wasn't until 1996, 1995 is when they released the uh, public access note. So it was 20, a little over 20 years of no public access after this road was established. And that road was funded by industry, not by the public, not by the state. That's right. And so um, that's that's one of the arguments in this thing is like, well, if you're proposing this thing's going to be shut down to what they're they're not wanting it to be open to the public to uh, relieve the fears that natives communities have of the impact on hunting in their communities along this proposed stretch of road. And what what the public fails to to understand is this whole BLM permitting process is just one one phase of a much larger picture that is a that is a muddy torrent of flooding of to, to public lands coming our way and uh, 
what I mean by that is shortly after they sent this proposal out, you know, you can look at the Dalton Highway at the near the Yukon River Bridge and put your finger on the map right at the Dalton Highway and go left 211 miles to the Amber River. This whole process is only talking about the road going there. This, this, all of this is about the right of way for this road. You know, we're going to have to cross all this public land. So we need to transfer. BLM has to transfer all this land to somebody um, to make this, you know, a commercialized interest, right? Well, seeing all that, knowing what wildness this road is going to cut across, you know, you can imagine the opposition immediately. But what I did was started looking at survey sites at the Geo Geophysical Institute of what companies have done survey drilling prior to this to this release of this uh, proposed road. And what I started to uncover or realize was somewhat, I mean, disturbing to me because how many times have you heard mention of rare earth minerals when it's connected, when it's when discussed about the Ambler Road or the Brooks Range? Never. Mm -hmm. You don't hear about tungsten, silver, lead, gold. Um, you also don't hear about uranium, plutonium, um, lithium. These are things that are close to the surface and right in the path of this proposed road. And what that means is open pit mining potential for the western side of the Brooks Range. Open pit mining on the south side where the sun has the maximum exposure to the Brooks Range and you're going to put an open pit mine uh, in areas above freshwater sources that feed federal lands and go all the way to the Bering Sea. Um, I don't know how in the world this thing will ever get passed, but I can tell you that every year since 2016, the Brooks Range is flooded with helicopters and survey teams drilling core samples and surveying uh, road markers. They're moving forward as if this thing was going to get passed. And as you mentioned earlier, it depends on who's in office as to how much traction this uh, this road gets. You know, Trump was a huge supporter. Biden's not. So you get these ebbs and flows and in activities and permits. But uh, in the big picture, my personal belief, it's it's going to be the end of wildness in the Brooks Range west of Dalton Highway. And it's going to displace a tremendous amount of hunting activity into the neighboring east side of the Brooks Range, which is going to drastically impact the you know medium to low moose densities and you know struggling caribou populations that are east of the dalton highway so it has huge huge impacts huge impacts and the brooks range is the most remotest place in in the united states bar none it's, it's the western yeah it's the western tip of the rockies and you know how far where that starts in the lower 48 runs all the way through canada all the way through Alaska and ends, you know, 100 miles or 80 miles west of this proposed road. And the Bering Sea is right there. So, yeah, I really hope this doesn't go through. <laughs> I'll be flat out. And and I wish hunters were more concerned about it. I wish there was more of a. a, a I, I wish it was there was more of a talking point down here. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is, and I'm just not involved in it, but. I think most, most of the decisions around these things are they, they post public meetings. They have all these, you know, um, phases where like right now we're in the scoping process, which is 
step two of six and the sixth would be the record of decision, you know, so we're, um, that has been delayed because of uh, different administrative uh, changeovers and policy changes, et cetera. So the, the process is kind of somewhat stalled at the moment, but um, it's it's not gone forever, that's for sure, because those, those survey crews are, are fully active. Have they done an, an environmental impact statement yet? Do you know? Yeah, it's draft phase. Draft phase, okay. Yeah. What's the sentiment of, of hunters but, uh, up there? You know, it's going to, you know, I think Alaska is, is split. There is a definite division of uh, public landowners who are, who are divided between industry and conservation, to put it uh, simply. And I would say that's probably a, a 60 or 70 to roughly 30%. Um, pro-development versus pro-conservation. So the the struggles are many, you know, groups. Uh, I proposed a backcountry conservation area for 3 million acres involving part of this Ambler Road proposal along the Brooks Range in response to BLM's uh, land transfer acceleration program. They're, they're, they're wanting to shed 15 million acres to make room for one to two roads in the Western Brooks range and deciding what to do with all this land. And I proposed this to BCA. Um, and this was years ago when I worked with BHA and then approached all these hunting groups, these outdoor groups and, um, fervently, uh, rejected the proposal for any sort of federal designation like a conservation area, which, by the way, would open up access if if approved. Like it would open up uh, snow machine access in the winter, for example, where right now none exists. Um, so there were pros to public use of lands in that region, but the overall the overarching fear amongst sixty to seventy percent of of Alaskans is they're anti-Fed. That's just a pervasive feeling. Yeah, and you you sense that when you're up against um, you know, public land rights and, and issues surrounding that because uh, many of the pro-development families are also motorheads. They either have airboats or four-wheelers or both or snow machines, four-wheelers, airplanes. Like um, m- motorized access is not frowned upon in Alaska. And only, only a small percentage of us um, are human-powered movement connoisseurs and remote backcountry enthusiasts where we might use a, a plane to get us somewhere but we're gonna we're gonna be floating for eight or ten days before another plane picks us up or we land back in town somewhere so um uh the 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 use is certainly divided amongst the lands in alaska and it, it leans more heavily on the pro-development side than the conservation so the those fights are are long and arduous and underpowered for the latter. Damn. Well, I again, I, I really hope it doesn't go through because yeah, I wild places are so important. Yeah, open pit mining in the Brooks Range. It's too um, with global warming, permafrost, the sloughing, uh, permafrost melting. Like the, it's real. It's not something that's fictitious. And in Alaska, I've got plenty of video evidence that shows one area intact one year and 
several years later, you know, you have a half a mile of the mountain broken into the into the Niger River and, you know, sloughing is is happening. So having a, an open pit with a high sunshine rate and warming climate seems like a freaking disaster. But, um, you know, I'm no expert. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I have conversations with people that are anti-global warming and all. It's all bullshit. But it's like, man, just go go visit Exit Glacier, and yeah. <laughs> on your way to Seward, and yeah. see uh, how it's receding, and see at the rate of which it's receding, and judge for yourself. That's all I got to say. Oh, and that's Southern Alaska. Yeah, you go farther north and the. Uh, it's more pronounced, you know, the effects are more drastic because yep. the permafrost is closer to the surface. There's no trees or root structure to protect the soil. Like when things start to go in the brooks, it goes fast and, and, and vast. Yep. So Crazy let's, stuff. Let's circle back around to your business and you're like this, you're like a, a closet engineer. You're not a closet engineer. You're an engineer. You have a, a mind of a developer and your creator, and you've done some crazy shit. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. Developing with game bags and and rafts, because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to publicize companies that don't use hunting celebrities to sell products. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and I think the the difference between my company and others is that, um, we, you know, it, anything that you see in my in my portfolio of designs has come about because of a need or a problem that I was trying to find a solution to, and, and to which didn't exist. So, um, you know, back in the day with game bags, I questioned cotton fabric, like you know, um, blood on cotton does not does not sit well with me. I mean, think about a tampon, you know, how disgusting those are. Um, but they're great absorbers, right? The same, same concept for drawing moisture and fluid out of your meat. Um, but cotton just didn't, didn't seem like the future to me. So I experimented with simple nylon in my garage and uh, boiler room and created this little, you know, backyard science kit and uh, started to study bacteria and the rate at which it grew on both fabrics, uh, plastic versus cotton, and realized there was something too on nylon, you know, synthetic materials and uh, the repulsion of, you know, harmful, you know, spoilage bacteria, how quickly it dries. I mean, there's so many benefits. So I was the first person to come out with a, with a, you know, synthetic game bag and put that on the market. And man, if you remember, it was, it was several years of naysayers before it started to catch on. Like it took a while for people to say, yeah, you know, this guy might have, he might be onto something. And, uh, it, it I was with years. you when, when you were doing yeah. the testing, Absolutely, you had, man. you had the temperature and, and the, the test kits and you were measuring every, like every so often, I don't know how many hours you were waiting, but yeah. you'd go in there, mark it down. And yeah, it's crazy, man. That was back in 2004 or something like that. Wasn't it? Or three? Yeah. That was early. So yeah, man. And you know, just, just, having all these rafts that weren't really effective even for those guys that were busted by the troopers up in the north like they were in early model rafts that i was just buying off the shelf you know and um, i realized i could do better just by designing something a little different you know just uh, making it more appropriate for tributaries versus big rivers and 
Uh, it was a hit, and I think I've I've had ten or ten or twelve designs that have you know been in production for many years over the years, and worked with companies like Soar and Sotar before uh, deciding to take the plunge and you know creating my own brand of inflatable rafts. So now we have everything from a seventeen pound pack raft that holds eight hundred pounds all the way up to a hundred and fifty pound raft that holds three thousand pounds. And, uh, you know, nine foot versions, 11 foot, 13, 16 foot versions. Uh, so we cover all basic usage with those, with those wrap designs. We're pretty proud of them. The row kits that go with them, everything's super lightweight. And, you know, it's, uh, it's engineered for backcountry logistics, small cars, small planes, high flotation, extreme access. And, uh, yeah, we've done pretty well with them. And these were all designed by you? All designed by me. I, I generally, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you, you gave me credit for being an engineer. I don't have that degree, but uh, I do have an engineer mind. Uh, being able to take a chance on something and being okay for it to be a failure, just to use it as a learning, learning tool. And that's helped me uh, get past some of the fears of, well, what if they don't like it? Or what if it doesn't work? Well, sometimes you have to just do it. And if it tests well, then you can produce it, make a profit, then it might be a viable product. Shit, man, for as many products as I have currently available, I've had as many fail and you've never heard of them. You know, it's just, it's something I do with my time instead of bar hopping or womanizing. I just put that energy into creating something that's positive that either solves a problem for me or uh, industry. It's been pretty fun. And, and I've learned that the more you do that, uh, the next time you do a project, you're smarter at it and more efficient. Uh, your your efficacy rate uh, improves with each success or failure. So it's more motivation for me to just keep keep moving, keep producing, keep innovating. So it's fun, fun career path. And your newest uh, endeavor is Industria Imperium. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Oh man, Industrial Imperium. That is a love affair that has cost me a lot of gray hairs so far. Um, six years ago, I decided my my next problem to solve was my food kit weight for expeditions. And as you know, we pack on many a trip together. You know, by the time you get in the plane and go in on day one. Your food kit weighs about 20 pounds for a 10-day trip. That's if you don't eat much. Generally about 25, 27 pounds per person for a 10-day trip. Yeah. And that that equates to two to two and a half pounds of food weight per person per day for a requirement for a food kit for most expedition hunting in Alaska. And that problem for me was part of an overarching. Uh, consolidation or reduction of logistics hassle. Uh, and that idealism drove my raft designs, my game bag designs. Everything is lighter, and smaller, and more compact. It makes simpler sense and easier to use, easy to repair. Um, the next thing on my list was my food kit situation. And unfortunately, there's fucking tons of nutritional bullshit out there. And it's all, it, much of it is sugar and whey protein. Um, and that's not what I'm looking for. What my goal was, I went to the University of Alaska 
one of my best friends at the time, uh, Robert Coker, Dr. Robert Coker. So his middle name is Trey. We call him Trey. Trey is an exercise physiologist. He has a PhD in exercise science. He's uh, a ri- he's published over a hundred articles on, you know, everything related to exercise metabolism, to sports nutrition, you know, sarcopenia. I mean, the list is so long, it's embarrassing to leave some things out. He's a really smart dude. And uh, we were just chatting in his office one day and I said, hey, hey, bro, I've got a problem I want to kick at you. And you just maybe guide me and see if there's any kind of science out there that could educate me. I want to reduce my food kit by 50%. Like, that's my goal. 50% reduction in my food kit. And he kind of raised his brows like, that's a lot, man. And I was like, but I want to maximize nutrient density. I want to maximize nutrient density because I'm afraid that I'm going to lose muscle mass. Like my my normal frame is 105 to 11% body fat, but I got a 25 BMI. So I'm 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 an athletic build to say the least. But I've always been uh, educated, if you will. I've got a nursing degree. Even in that degree field, um, you you're taught to believe certain things about nutrition and nutrient density was a concern for reducing, uh, uh, for drastically reducing a food kit to that consumption while you're doing arduous expedition style exercise. Right. So I posed that question to him. He says, well, let me, you know, let me do some research. He came back and said, there's no published studies on the metabolic requirements or energy expenditure in hunters, but I have a team here with the tools the MRI, the DEXA scan, we can do muscle biopsies, blood work, anything we want to do, we can do right here in this lab in Fairbanks. So we started designing studies to identify the energy requirements in hunters. That led to the metabolic benefits of hunting. We were noticing interesting changes inside the body with the way the body uses um, your intrahepatic area fat, like your, your lipids, the parts that are bad fats that are around your, your pancreas and, and liver. Um, those were being reduced while your bad cholesterol were going down or your good cholesterol was uh, slightly elevated. Your good cholesterol was going down like all these interesting changes as a result of these studies. Well, fast forward three years and we were into muscle biopsies and we started to realize at the my RNA level, what muscles we're being turned on during exercise, specifically in your arms and legs when you're dragging a raft or backpacking or dragging a sled for hours a day over periods longer than a week. And we used that data and thought, okay, what it, what is the end goal of all this? Now that now that I've got this information, how can I reduce the weight of my food kit? And he was like, well, we could we could start looking at all of these muscle biopsies. And look at the what specific muscles are being triggered. You know what, uh, you know what specific muscles are being triggered, and how what the mechanism of, the, of that activity really is to better understand maybe what foods could complement the situation in these scenarios. And he got to work, and Trey, he's got extensive work with uh, developing formulas for clinical research, and we applied his and you know his IP, his intellectual prowess to developing a formula specific to the state of a human body being in a calorie deficient state of operation for long periods of time, meaning you're operating without enough food. And this supplement gives you 
all of the nutrients you need to prevent you from losing lean mass. It also delivers all of the important healthy plant proteins and amino acids. Uh, Sachi Inchi for the uh, medium chain triglycerides and good fats. Uh, it's got CoQ10, all the all vit- a full vitamin spectrum, full mineral spectrum, which you never get in a full field diet. There's so many um, bonuses to this small one ounce powder that's used in micro encapsulation. So when you put it in water, it dissolves immediately. And when you drink it, those amino acids are absorbed by the gut and your muscles use it immediately. It doesn't need to be metabolized like intact proteins that we get from our our meals ready to eat and our dehydrated meals or any food that you have to put in your mouth. All of that food has to be broken down. So the premise behind this is put less of that stuff in your body that your body has to work to use energy to break down and use amino acids and supplements to target those specific muscles that need that specific fuel during exercise with or without having a calorie abundance on board. So it's pretty revolutionary stuff, man. Damn. And yeah, the food technology that has, that has sprouted, that's making this possible is a process called micro encapsulation, whereby they take small particles that are the size of silk, not sand. You know the difference, right? Silk is much finer than Mm -hmm. sand. Well, these particles of food or plant protein and other nutrients are all at that microscopic, you know, uh, 0.05 level. Like it's they're tiny, tiny, and they're coated with a matrix of a coating that prevents you from tasting it when you put it in your mouth, and it doesn't absorb until it's in your gut. And so that you, if you've heard, you remember the astronauts back in the 60s and 70s talk about how disgusting those protein pills were. Yeah, you know, you had to drink them fast and get them down so you wouldn't taste them because they're so bitter and so nasty. And we were able to use this micro encapsulation process with industry leaders in California to develop this this uh, formula to make it a palatable mix with all of these important nutrients that are specifically targeting muscles on the go uh, in a calorie deficient state. So it makes it perfect for operators in the military, perfect for backcountry enthusiasts, um, endurance athletes, Appalachian Trail hikers. I mean, anyone who is concerned about food weight going into the field. Uh, this drastically reduces the need for intact protein sources. So as a test, we took the pro, uh, we had to develop, uh, the samples developed, and we had several hundred units and uh, took them to the field and tested them. And man, the results are incredible. I was able to get my expedition food kit, my float hunting food kit down to uh, 16 ounces per day. So that's one pound of food per day. For 11 days. So I had 10 and a half pounds of food weight for 11 days in the field and I uh, had no, I had a full retention of lean muscle mass and lost four and a half pounds of body weight. So that uh, shows you the, the efficacy of this formula, at least Damn. one small data sample anyway. So we took that idea and we pitched it to the, um, to the, uh, Combat feeding initiative that DOD uh, NSIN has has uh, put out a call to action for companies able to produce technology that can get um, amino acid concentration to a greater than ninety percent by weight into an eleven gram um, delivery system, which is you know a couple 
teaspoons, right? And uh, so we pitched our idea to them and won that award. So uh, we got paid to develop a new formula specific for DOD, which we're uh, using to to uh, prove our provisional patent and uh, go into studies, hopefully within the year, on uh, you know what it what it's like on a in a scientific study scenario using this formula and you and without using the formula, so that you can compare. Uh, the efficacy of the of the use. It's a pretty exciting year ahead. So we developed three flavors in Minimus. We have a, a cocoa dust, right? A cocoa powder, uh, tomato gazpacho, which we're calling a mater dust, and a shredded uh, cheddar mashed potato, instant potato, which we're calling tater dust. And uh, those three flavors are going to be available at minimusnutrition.com. Gosh, within it should be by the time this thing airs, we'll be live and uh, ready to take orders. At least get online and and uh, have some questions answered and see some of the scientific uh, papers that we published in preparation for developing this formula. And this pretty, is bars and and powder. So right now it's it's just the three flavors and instant powder. Okay. So the uh, cocoa dust and the tater dust comes in a one ounce one ounce sachet. And the uh, shredded or the uh, mashed potatoes come in a two ounce packet. And a typical dose for those that might be interested is two to three of those packets in one day. So maybe a cocoa dust in the morning, a tater dust or a or a uh, mashed potato at lunch to supplement whatever you're eating, and uh, some in your meal at the end of the day or use as a supplement for a meal. And the the minimum squared, if you will, the new formula that we've developed, it is a tasteless, surprisingly a tasteless formula that we have designed specifically to serve as an adjunct or an add-on to the existing uh, military ration, the MRE. So that allows soldiers, instead of eating a whole MRE, you know, they could sprinkle two table, two teaspoons of this this new minimum squared powder, a tasteless formula on any meal. And get all the amino acids that they need without eating the whole meal itself. Pretty incredible implications. Damn. Yeah, and is this product line separate for the military or will this be available to civilians? We're moving in that direction. We applied for a, a cyber grant. And um, basically that's an innovation and research grant opportunity through the government. And what that allows a, a business to do is take your product idea. Right now, we've got the three flavors in Minimus, and uh, those are market ready. That's our proof of concept sales uh, for the first year. And uh, what behind the scenes, we're moving this this ninety percent by gram formula through this cyber program. It'll take about a year to go through, but what we're hoping to do with that is get it commercial ready using the cyber program. So that they uh, give, uh, you know, release basically award funding to proceed with these very expensive and sophisticated scientific studies that will eventually support the patent for the new formula or support the current provisional patent and, and you know, any future patents uh, around this current one. So uh, the first three flavors are available now. The next flavor will be available within the year, I would imagine. In where year. this is called minimus, 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 nu minimus nutrition, M I N I M U S, 
Think Minimus Maximus. Yep. Minimus Nutrition. And what's the website again? Yeah, minimusnutrition.com. And this will be, by the time this airs, this will be... It'll be May 1st. It should be ready to rock and roll. We're we're locking in e-commerce and polishing the website as we speak. Nice. Yeah, pretty awesome. So you probably sit around with a lot of free time, it sounds like it. Yeah, right? You think. This this last March, I got uh, contacted by the University of Montana for an unrelated project, but uh, related to Pristine Ventures. For uh, there is a congressional grant that was applied, given awarded to University of Montana to study the human performance of a problem set for the military, which is a sled design. And I was solicited to be the designer. So I've designed to produce a collapsible sled for the 11th Airborne Group. And they've tested this design out in Alaska and in Finland during Arctic Forge this spring. Actually, in February, I was just there to, to watch them test this design. So exciting front on the, you know, on the on the way for Pristine Ventures, for sure. Yeah, just when I was when I moved, you were really focusing on accessing areas that were just essentially hard to un- reach. Hard to reach, right? I think even that last river we floated, we might have been oh. one of the first to float it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that and that those sleds. I just came up with a you know years ago I designed this rollable rollable sled you know you can kind of use it and then roll it and tuck it away and um man that has get that has provided some serious logistical support for me over the years and i gave that design to a different company and said man i, I don't know i'm not a sled guy you're a sled company here's the design you know here's what i think you could do with it and they put it out as a product and man it's still it's still going strong they call it the lb flex sled and now Alaska Airframes owns that that Northern Sled Works that I gave the design to. But I, Alaska Airframes helped me with the production of these 132 prototypes to be tested by the military. So we're we're rocking and rolling, man. I'm back in the sled design business and didn't even want to be. Damn. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Pretty cool. So any anything moving forward? Do you have anything on your plate that's you want to? Yeah, that's that's all the new stuff that I've got going on. It's the 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 busy stuff that I just mentioned in the last ten minutes is gonna is gonna you know build energy over this next calendar year. Uh, you'll you'll see me more on social media. I've never I've never had a social media account, and uh, I've hired somebody to help me, you know, manage some of my business uh tasks so that we have time for social media and i i i'm new at that i'm a virgin in that so uh, anyone who does find me on social media this summer be patient because i you know, i'm 50 years old and have never logged on to facebook so it's going to be a challenging <laughs> new <laughs> a new arena for me but uh to you know to try to to manage two businesses with multiple brands without having um um, influencers or other personalities, TV personalities and big rock stars to push your stuff. Uh, it's a double-edged sword of, of taking that stance because then you have the burden of, of proof 
for yourself, right? I mean, it, it almost doubles or triples or quadruples your own personal workload when you don't have experts um, touting your goods uh, until they come across it accidentally and, you know, the, organically. And that's that's what we hope for. And that's what I've that's how I've existed in, in the past. And I'm going to try that in the future. And and uh, I commend you guys for for honoring businesses that, that choose that path because it's not an easy one, I guarantee you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's evident that when you look at the impacts that some of these celebrities have and some of the followers that, you know, one post on a product can can reach a million plus people. I mean, essentially. Yeah. And that kind of marketing power is is just that powerful. So, you know, yeah. the businesses that are doing it with without reaching those those celebrities that we're we're trying to uh patronize and and publicize and and i even think there's a page on the hunt quietly website that that we're devoting to to simply publicizing those those companies that that do it that way right on that's great man it's always a pleasure to talk to you jimbo i wish i could hug your neck brother i miss you i know man me too it's so good seeing you and um Man, it's just I miss Alaska. I miss you, and you know, it was so so good catching up on this podcast. You bet, brother. Bring your family up sometime. I'd love to reacquaint with them, man. Yeah, I know. I I I I would say let's plan a trip, but I, I don't know yeah. if I have the money to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You better come quick. It's only getting more expensive. <laughs> well, thanks, well, come- brother. I appreciate your time. Come back on, and when when you have more to talk about, and and as yeah. uh, the minimus. Uh, supplements gets going and come back on and let's talk again. You bet, brother. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Larry. Take care, man.